0: It's not uncommon to see labels identifying plants or flowers in a garden, but when one of those markers reads magic plants, even the most horticulturally challenged, like me, can't help but take notice. Good morning, I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. On this morning's show, we'll tiptoe through the Mary's Mint as we explore the medieval gardens at the Cloisters in Upper Manhattan. Also today, we'll pound the pavement with the authors of a new guide for runners and walkers in New York City.
1: We look for attractions, so just something that might
0: make her out more interesting, enjoyable. Glad you're with us for Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. If you want to add a little valor to your garden, you might find inspiration at the Cloisters in Upper Manhattan. There you'll find plants and flowers with names like Infant Jesus Shoes, Lady Lords, and Angel's Trumpet. The Cloisters is home to authentic medieval gardens. We checked them out on a recent sunny morning.
2: My name is Deirdre Larkin, and I'm in charge of the gardens at the Cloisters.
0: Set the scene for us, Deirdre, will you? Where are we right now?
2: Right now we're high above the Hudson River in Fort Tryon Park, and if you look across the river you'll see that the Palisades are still quite beautiful, and John D. Rockefeller Jr. had the wisdom when he was involved in the creation of the Cloisters to protect about 500 acres of land across the river, so there would always be a view.
0: It's hard to look across the river when you have all this beauty right here before us at the Cloisters.
2: Yes, you can either take the long view or the short view, and... If you look inward towards the garden, you'll see what is a recreated medieval garden. Now, it's not a reproduction of any particular medieval garden or monastery garden. It's rather a synthesis of what we know about medieval gardens. Most of them were enclosed, as this one is, with a low parapet wall. They often included raised beds, like the ones that we see here. This was a technique that was actually inherited from the Romans. And it's very practical and has come back into style because it makes it easier to improve your soil, uh, to use water wisely, to keep out weeds. Um, So all the plants in this garden are assigned to these raised beds on the basis of their use.
0: And what exactly does that mean?
2: Certainly they would not have been grown this way in the Middle Ages, but it is important to remember that plants would have had multiple uses. One plant might have five or six different practical applications, including medicinal applications, and might also be appreciated for its beauty or its fragrance and also be assigned symbolic meanings, sometimes more than one symbolic meaning. So it's a bit of a game deciding which category you'll put the plant into. But for instance, On my left here, there's a large L-shaped bed of plants used in medieval magic. On the right side of the garden, the large L-shaped bed in the opposite corner is a bed of plants used as artist materials. There is a large bed of plants used in the medieval kitchen. We have several beds of medicinal plants, and of course in the Middle Ages, virtually all plants were used medicinally, not just the ones that we've selected and put into the medicinal beds for you. So although this method does make it interesting and people do get to learn a bit about the uses of the plants because each of the plants are labeled and so are the beds. It really is artificial.
0: What do we know about the medicinal plants? What were they used to cure, to treat?
2: We know more about the medicinal plants probably than any other category of plants because it's extremely well documented through medieval herbals and uh, medical writings. Now, for a long time, I think our own herbal traditions were really discounted. Once the re- medieval world view was rejected, medieval medicine went out with it. But in recent years, scholars have been quite seriously reinvestigating uh, some of these sources, and a lot of scholarly work is being done on medieval medicine and medieval herbals. And for instance, in terms of our own uh, medicinal botanical research, when... Uh, New York Botanical Garden sends ethnobotanists to the Amazon to do research. They do consult with the uh, healers in a given area and ask them what plants are most worth investigating and what they're used for and it's been pointed out that we may as well do that with our own tradition sometimes because there are some outlandish stories that are associated with medieval medicinal plants there's a tendency to just throw the baby out with the bathwater but it is the case that people's knowledge of medicinal plants is based on many many centuries of practical experiment it doesn't require any kind of scientific apparatus Does a plant make your mouth dry or does it make you salivate? Is it laxative? Is it diuretic? Does it redden your skin or soothe your skin? And um, people had accumulated quite a bit of knowledge and there's a direct uh, connection between the herbal and medicinal knowledge of antiquity and the Middle Ages. So it's all being investigated.
0: I'm sure you must get a lot of questions about the magic plants over there because my eyes were immediately drawn to that little label, magic plants. What do they do?
2: The first thing that people want to know is what does that mean, magic plants? And actually, the plants in that bed fall broadly into two categories. There are plants that were used in um, what we might call white magic or folk magic, that were used amuletically to protect yourself or your household or your cattle against bewitchment or bad weather or ill fortune of any kind. And then there are plants that were used by witches, some of which are somewhat sinister and poisonous and famous. And I'm very, very committed to growing them here for that reason, because we have plants like mandrake and henbane that people might not see anywhere else, even in the New York Botanical Garden. A lot of our botanical gardens really, their focus is no longer the traditional healing plants of Europe. They are focused really on um, uh, plants of the Americas, uh, whether uh, New uh, South America or our own native plants. So um, I don't know where else you would go if you wanted to see a mandrake. We have really a very respectable crop growing right now. It took a long time to establish the mandrake in the gardens. We were interested to go back and find that as early as 1939, the gardeners were having trouble getting the mandrake established in the gardens. They would start it and have it in a cold frame, and when they tried to put it out in the gardens, it would languish, and there's correspondence to that effect. But finally, I'd say about Oh, 10 years or so ago, um, it was finally established, and now it's really thriving and flowering and fruiting. Very often if a plant is just getting by, it may even look reasonably happy, but it won't flower and fruit, it won't reproduce unless the conditions are really what it wants. And so now we have fruit and flowers, and we have a few surplus mandrakes. I never thought I would see the day when I would say, I can give a little program and dig up a mandrake and see what happens, which I'm sure people would love to be present for. But I never would have had that luxury. But now I think I can do it.
0: What are the biggest challenges of maintaining a medieval garden in modern-day New York?
2: It has gotten easier in the last, oh ten 10 years to get authentic medieval plants because of a worldwide interest in uh, wildflowers and in native plants. We do get seed from European botanical gardens. Maintaining the garden is probably the biggest problem because it is a very labor-intensive garden. For one thing, the kind of thematic garden that we've been talking about is labor-intensive by definition because just because I grouped all these plants together because they fit under a rubric like medicinal or magical doesn't mean they want to grow together. They could come from all different habitats and all different uh, uh, climates. Some are Mediterranean, some are Northern European. If you're growing them all in the same bed under the same conditions it can get tricky. A lot of botanical gardens now for instance uh, grow their collections by habitat and you don't that line so that is a challenge they are also uh, many of them very weedy by nature in fact some of them would be considered weeds by most people and so they haven't been bred to be well behaved the way that our modern garden plants have so they need a lot of attention or else they look messy Uh, so again it's just a a very labor-intensive garden.
0: How important are lawns in medieval gardens?
2: Well, I've just done a post to our blog, The Medieval Garden Enclosed, on the medieval lawn. And actually, they very much admired a fine lawn. And we have instructions uh, that were given by Albertus Magnus, uh, who wrote on making of gardens, that nothing was so uh, beautiful as fine turf kept short. And he gave instructions for laying the lawn in a pleasure garden uh, we have a lawn upstairs in a Garden, and what he recommended doing was pouring boiling water over the site to kill all the weed seeds after you had removed the roots and stones that were in your way, and that you would then dig turves from a meadow or another lawn, you would lay them down, and you would pound them. And this is not all that different from the way that we sod and roll a lawn today. But they wouldn't have been able to keep out all the little weeds and wildflowers, although I think it was an ideal Uh, In other cases, they may have deliberately introduced uh, daisies and other flowering plants into the lawn. We know that a flowering lawn or meadow was part of the medieval pleasure garden. In any case, um, they certainly did uh, prize a lawn. And uh, we do have records that go back um, to the 13th and 14th centuries, showing how how much money was expended on the turves to lay the lawn a pleasure garden or at a college or an abbey. So we can retrieve these documents, yes. But we do, I have to admit, mow ours. There is some question of how the lawn was kept short in the Middle Ages. And I have seen this same question asked in the context of Roman gardens. And the answer is we don't really know. I would say that I think that the grasses that they had were not as tall and unruly as our grasses it may be that they scythed them. It may be that sheep were allowed to crop them, which is the ideal thing. And they were very, very good practical horticulturists because if you allow your lawn to be cropped by sheep, you're fertilizing it at the same time and you're also you know, rolling it, as it were, because you have the weight of the animals treading back and forth. But I don't have any direct evidence. I don't think we're going to have sheep any time soon. We don't have a deer problem, of course, but we do have a squirrel problem.
0: That's what I've heard, and I've heard that these are pretty smart squirrels.
2: Yes, I was once here in the evening, because normally uh, the gardeners only work until the museum closes. But I had occasion to be here late, and I guess it was about 5.20 or so, and the museum had closed at 5.15. And hordes of squirrels started coming over the wall into the garden. They knew perfectly well when the museum closed, and it was safe to come in and start digging up my bulbs and making a mess.
0: Speaking of bulbs, medieval gardens do contain many bulbous plants, correct?
2: We do have a good many bulbous plants. Uh, Some of the spring-blooming bulbs that grow upstairs in Kuxa Garden wouldn't have been known in the Middle Ages. We have three gardens, and only two of them are restricted to medieval plants, Kuxa is the main ornamental garden for the museum, so we don't hold ourselves to a dated list there. Many of the bulbous plants that we know and love, like hyacinths and tulips, wouldn't have been known in the Middle Ages. But they certainly did have daffodils and bluebells and snowdrops, and many other spring blooming bulbs. A lot of plants came into cultivation in the Renaissance. They came in through Constantinople, but they wouldn't have been known uh, before then.
0: Snowdrops keep your garden beautiful in the winter, right?
2: They're very early blooming. They're the first thing to bloom and are called snowdrops because they do, in fact, come right up through the snow.
0: I understand there's a technique used in pruning trees called pollarding. What exactly is that?
2: Yes, the trees upstairs in Kuksa have just been pollarded for the first time. The trees have somewhat outgrown the space, and they were not only shading out the beds and the gardens, but they were also obscuring the architecture of the cloister. So we needed to reduce the size of the canopy. Now, those are crabapple trees. So we decided, uh, in conjunction with our consulting arborist, to pollard the trees, which is a medieval technique. There are actually two medieval techniques used for woodland management. One is called coppicing, where you cut the tree at the base. You get a lot of very straight, rapid sucker growth from the base that can be used for all kinds of things. It was called small wood in the Middle Ages, and you might use it for making wattle. Uh, You might use it for tool handles. It was actually valuable, and much of the value of a medieval woodland was in this small wood. But if you cut a tree at the base and you get all that nice new growth on the ground, the animals can beat you to it. So this technique of pollarding developed where you cut the tree above the browse line and all that new growth is out of the animal's reach and you would then get up on a ladder and harvest it. Now, it is authentically medieval, it does solve our problem, and it also allows us to show people what a pollarded tree looks like. But it's not a technique that would have been used in a monastic garden in the Middle Ages. Although, if the abbey owned a woodland, it would certainly have been used as a technique of woodland management. Now, you can't drastically cut a tree back, which is what you're doing when you pollard. And people may have seen them in Europe. They get this knobby, scarred sort of look uh, after being cut back and cut back. It's not to American taste, really. Uh, And now we think of it as an ornamental form, enjoyed by French people, (laughs) and not by us. But it actually was very practical in its origins. And you can't do all this drastic cutting in one year. It has to be phased over three years. So we have just completed the first phase.
0: I think that pollarding makes trees look like lollipops.
2: It does. And they would have not minded that in Miletus. I could show you lots of manuscripts with trees that look like lollipops.
0: What about grapevines? Grapevines are also important to medieval gardens, right? Yes,
2: absolutely. And we don't have a grapevine in the courtyard. Uh, I mean, we do have a grapevine in the courtyard at the moment. We don't have one inside, and I would like to reintroduce one. We did at one time have some grapevines growing up the wall. I'd like to put them back because, again, they are you can't overestimate the importance of it grapes economically as well as liturgically and symbolically and decoratively in every way. So we're always on a quest to add more plants, to find plants that are closer to um, what would have been known in the Middle Ages, and it's another part of the game.
0: If someone wanted to put some medieval flavor in their home garden, where do you think they should start?
2: Well, actually, many urban gardens and suburban gardens are well-suited to a garden of the medieval type because you have enclosure. You can put a hedge around your yard, or if you're in a, in a townhouse, you already have a courtyard. I'd say that our top ten favorite plants overlaps almost entirely with the top ten favorite plants of the Middle Ages, roses and lilies and violets and iris. There are many, many of the herbs that we're still using for cooking, were used for cooking in the Middle Ages and were also used for other purposes. I think the thing to remember is that the gardens are relatively uh, chaste in their geometry. Um, They are relatively neat, at least in the depictions that we have. We don't know how idealized they might be. But it's a very different sensibility than the romantic English garden, although cottage gardens do ultimately derive from the medieval type. But neat and sweet and enclosed this would be my watchword <laughs> if I were going to make one in a context other than the cloisters.
0: Do you ever have any problems with New York native plants invading your medieval garden here? It's
2: rather the other way around. <laughs> we have to be careful and responsible about not letting our weedy plants you know, get out into uh, the park. In fact, many of the plants that we grow deliberately are considered weeds in the United States. But no, that's it's all the other way. The reason for that is very simple. It's very difficult for an alien plant to insert itself into Uh, a closed system, into a habitat that's populated by native plants. But if you disturb that system, if you plow a field, if you break up ground to create a building, you level the playing field, and then the invaders can just go to town, so to speak.
0: Deidre, thank you so much for your time.
2: Uh, Thank you very much.
0: Deidre Larkin is in charge of the medieval gardens at the Cloisters. For more information, check out metmuseum.org backslash cloisters. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and wfuv.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Boldarchy. Running enthusiast Warwick Ford says you haven't seen a place until you've seen it on foot. He and his wife, who shares his passion for running, have authored a new guide for runners and walkers called Fun on Foot in New York. I caught up with the Fords at Pelham Bay Park in the Bronx. I'm Warwick Ford, I'm the primary author.
3: I'm Nola Ford, uh, I'm the running mate. And
0: here we are in Pelham Bay Park in the Bronx. This is New York City's largest park. A lot of people think it's Central Park, but no, it's here, Pelham Bay. Yep, yeah, that's correct.
1: Yeah. In the Bronx, we've covered in our book uh, eight separate routes. Uh, in fact, the book itself covers a total of over 80, 80 routes, uh, eight in the Bronx, including right here at Pelham Bay Park, including Van Cortland Park, uh, of course, um, and a number of other r- routes, including routes that, that link the two of those. Have you two actually
0: done all of those routes?
3: I've done most of, well, for, for the book, yes, over 80 trails. We've, we've mostly done them all together. I might have missed a couple when I was doing research somewhere else. Uh, but in general, yes, we, we have been together doing all these trails.
1: Yes, and I, I certainly uh, ran and researched every route in the book, the, the over 80. What do you two like
0: about running?
1: Well, I guess it, it starts with um, keeping fit, which is hopefully going to uh, lengthen our lives a little bit. Uh, but it's also the enjoyment, um, especially in, uh, when you're in a variety of different places, because you get to uh, see so many interesting places, you get to know the neighbourhoods well. Uh, it's, it's, it's very enjoyable, as well as being um, uh, something that's, that's good for the body
3: and I always love an end destination. Uh, You know, give me a restaurant for brunch or lunch. uh, It motivates me so I will be happy to complete the trail if I know I'm going to get a reward at the end.
0: That is one of your criteria for a good run destination, but there are three others, right? Uh, Yes, so when we
1: look for routes, we try to assess them in terms of four different things. Uh, First is comfort, so For example, how good is it underfoot, would we assess it as being in a reasonably uh, good neighbourhood, Um, no nasty surprises. Uh, Secondly we look for attractions, so just something that might make a route more interesting, enjoyable, because that always uh, helps you get to the end and helps time pass more quickly. Uh, Convenience, so how is it uh, possible to get to these routes via public transit for example. And the fourth one is uh, destination, as Nola pointed out. If there is a destination at the end of a route, we believe that quite often that makes it kind of easy to, easier to motivate you to complete it.
0: Now, what about the difference between running from point A to point B versus doing a loop? Which do you enjoy better?
1: Either of those are are okay. I think, in, in, in and and in fact, uh, they're better than like an out and back. Quite often we will do out-and-back routes, but the problem with that is you end up basically repeating everything you saw on the first half of it on the second half. So for that reason, if you can do a like a one-way route and then maybe get public transit back to the start, for example, that may be more enjoyable, or a loop is, is, is the best of all if you can
0: put one together. Now, the trails in your book aren't just for runners, they're for walkers too, right?
1: Uh, yes, because, you know, really there's not a great deal of difference in terms of the actual, actual route itself, so it's, it's really up to you. I mean, we're, we're, we are runners, and we, in general, will we'll, uh, run all these trails. Uh, however, there are certainly times when uh, if someone's injured or having a bad day, we will, we will walk them ourselves.
0: What do you say to people who say, you know what, I can't even walk three blocks, let alone two miles? Obviously there are some people with, with disabilities apart from that, uh,
1: usually anyone who uh, puts their mind to it can, can run distances of, or walk at least, distances of uh, a, a few miles uh, very easily and, and, and without, uh, without pain. And in fact, you know, it's the more you get out and do these routes, starting from quite small distances, the quicker you will inevitably improve and go
0: longer distances and go faster. Now there are so many runs in your book. You cover all five boroughs. Where in Manhattan is your favorite place to run? There are so many
1: routes. I think we cover about nine or ten or possibly more in in Manhattan, and really they're they're all great. Uh, we live near Central Park, so I guess I've got to admit that that's probably the place where I run most. But that's not the uh, that's not the whole answer because, uh, as I suggested before, having a variety is is what. Uh, Uh, Is what really helps us. So, for example, uh, a favourite route of ours is we will uh, run from our place over to the Hudson, right up the Hudson to uh, under the George Washington Bridge, up to Dykeman Street, Uh, go in there and then you go up the the bluff there into Fort Tryon Park. And that's a great hill workout for a start, just getting up there and then uh, come back through the park Park past the uh, the Cloisters Museum and the old fort. It's just beautiful uh, area up there. Uh, exit the park at the bottom and and catch an A train back home.
0: What about running on windy days like this? It's windy. I mean, that's going to give you some resistance, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. Certainly, some days some days are better than others. But um, you know, a bit of wind isn't isn't uh, that much of a problem. So if you've got a bit of resistance. Well, it's probably helping get you make you a little bit stronger too.
0: What's the ideal running weather for you? I actually love to run in hot weather. A lot of people don't like to run in hot weather, but I do. I don't mind sweating.
3: Yes, I don't like the uh, over 75. Uh, I like the fall weather when it's in the 60s and you need just a bit of a jacket and you've got that, that cool air around you. I run much better under those circumstances.
0: Talking about the fall weather, your book also includes routes upstate, and I'm sure that is a great place to be in the fall with the foliage.
1: Oh, yes, indeed. So uh, the book is uh, focused on the city, so probably uh, of those 80-odd routes, half of them at least would be the five boroughs. Uh, We then cover uh, areas around, so quite a lot of coverage on Westchester, for example, Nassau, and... um, on the Jersey, Jersey side of the Hudson, uh, but then we ha- also have a couple of chapters that go further out into into Upstate. Really, just picking out the very best routes in the uh, mainly in the higher population areas up there. But uh, absolutely, there's some there's some fantastic trails up there, and uh, we
0: certainly don't cover them all, and uh, I doubt that anyone could. There's one in Poughkeepsie that I want to try that takes you over the Mid Hudson Bridge, right?
3: yes that 's right that's that 's a most enjoyable one we We go across the bridge and then we where do we end up warwick you yeah can, you, you, know.
1: you can cross the the mid Hudson bridge there and do a nice loop uh, up uh, in the Highland area there and back. but the exciting thing that 's happening there is they 've uh, announced that they 're going to open up the old rail bridge as well now uh, when that happens, which I think is scheduled for fairly fairly soon now you'll have a fantastic uh, loop that you can do, including both the Hudson Bridge and the, uh, and the Rail Bridge. Uh, the Rail Bridge, when I say opened up, is going to be opened up f- for uh, purely pedestrian and bicycle usage.
0: Heading upstate, of course, is one great way to avoid the hustle and bustle of New York City. You can go to Central Park and avoid it. Actually, we're avoiding it right now in Pelham Bay Park. But you could also go to Roosevelt Island, take the tram or the subway right there, and enjoy a little bit of peace and quiet too. Uh, yes, that's right. So
1: for, for people on, uh, especially on the Upper East Side or or, or, or anywhere in in uptown Manhattan, that's a, that's a great little run, because you get onto the island there. There's very few other even runners there. Almost no bicycles. They don't exist. It's a it's a really nice little route. Um, there are some other routes around as well. So for nearby there, uh, a, a great one which we do do sometimes is. You run from like the Upper East Side over the Queensboro Bridge, uh, through Queens, uh, up to the Triborough Bridge, back on the Triborough Bridge, and, and down the East River, so that's, that's a loop run. It is, uh, it's something quite different and very uh, exhilarating in the, uh, up on those bridges.
0: We can't leave out Staten Island. Everyone often leaves out Staten Island, but it is one of the boroughs. You include it in your book. Where do you like to run or walk on Staten Island?
3: Well, first of all, uh, before I I get to that question, uh, we love the ferry ride out. And we always laugh because when we arrive at Staten Island, you see a lot of most of the people running around, getting ready to get back on the Staten Island ferry and they miss out on so much. Um, I will just mention uh, from the the ferry, my favourite spot, of course, is the boardwalk. (laughs) So the boardwalk area is is my favourite spot, uh, and we ended up at, at uh, New Dorp for Mother's Day brunch. But I'm sure Warwick can describe the trail a little bit better than me. Yeah, well, that that particular
1: trail you can connect from the from the ferry terminal. So get off the off the ferry, um, you can run to fort wadsworth and uh, it's very scenic there very historic and then connect onto the boardwalk run that the length of that boardwalk to Millerfield, and then as nola said just uh, loop back inland then it's a nice little restaurant strip and get the train back to to the ferry so that's about a um that's about an eight mile eight eight miles on foot which is very nice as nola said like on on mother's day we went out there and uh, had mother's day brunch at the end
3: work nola thank you so much Well, thank you, George. Thank you, George. It's been a pleasure. Warwick
0: and Snola Ford are the authors of Fun on Foot in New York. You can learn more at funonfoot.com. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. Have a great weekend.